You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. your host seeking to bring your very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And I'd like to explain some of the uh, silences you've heard. We were supposed to originally interview my guest today on the 30th of last month, but when we heard our apartment complex had the internet go down, at least in our apartment, and we weren't able to do it, and that sent my wife and I back to the Stone Age for a few hours as we actually had to live somehow without the internet. Very, very difficult. And last week I did an interview with, last Saturday I did an interview with Justin Peters, and unfortunately our recording equipment didn't work, so nothing was picked up. I'm hoping that doesn't happen again. This is part of the problem with being a low-budget show here. But today uh, I'm interviewing Luke Carty here. He is the author of the book, The Myth of the Non-Christian. Now, a little bit about him. He's a writer, speaker, trainer, and the director of Chrysalis an organization he helped start in 2012 with the aim of enabling others to better communicate the Jesus story. Much of his time is spent in context where God is not typically discussed in depth. He loves interacting with skeptical audiences in universities, schools, bars, cafes, and theaters, and anywhere else he's invited, including, apparently, podcasts. He also enjoys enabling individuals and Christian communities to better engage those around them with the story of Jesus. He spent most of his adult life founding and developing Christian communities and missionaries, locales and such, on university campuses in Britain and Romania. He's a regular speaker at conferences and outreach events in different countries. He's previously part of a writing team at InterVarsity Evangelism and a columnist at the Church of England newspaper. And this book that we're talking about today is his first book. It's published this year. He has an MA in Evangelism and Leadership from Wheaton College and a certificate in theological and pastoral studies with concentrating Christian apologetics from Oxford University. He's married to Whitney, a lovely South, Carolina, South Carolinian school teacher, and they have three young children. So, Luke, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you, Nick. It's good to be with you. Uh-huh. Now, in case my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit more personally about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Sure, how I got to be doing what I'm doing. Um... So I spent years um, on university campuses, um, engaged in um, founding and building up Christian communities on campus, um, mm-hmm. mainly under the umbrella of, of ISDS, which in, in America its manifestation would be InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent years doing that, um, in and around that, getting in um, relevant bits of study that I felt would help me in what I was doing, which you've already mentioned. Um, I had a, had a relationship with Romania for about, um, now about 15 years. Um, I'd started out in ministry there um, after I finished university. And, um, and so I guess, um, how did I end up with, with what I'm doing? Um, one thing was, um, as I did, 
I guess one thing I write about in the book actually is having a faith crisis um, mm-hmm. when I was a missionary in Romania actually uh, waking up on my first Christmas day morning as a missionary and, um, and my prayer was God I don't think you're real and if you are I don't like you um, so that was it's not a good prayer for a missionary to be praying no it's not in the book of great missionary prayers is it so um, so I think um, I, I had a, a very kind of um, activistic um, Christian background with a high expi- high um, accent as well on um, spiritual experience but um, at the time I was living in Bucharest, Romania I was 23 years old and um, was just surrounded by brokenness I guess um, I was riding the bus every day with um, there was a guy who begged on the bus and he'd had his legs chopped off as a child because his parents had put him on the train line to have his legs cut off and um, so he'd fetch more money as a beggar there were kids living in the sewers because it was uh, the warmest place for them to live because they didn't want to go home and be beaten by their parents and um, old women whose pensions had been devalued um, were standing on street corners holding their money out for cash and I think just seeing the stuff every day raised for me the question where where is God in all mm-hmm. this um, like I, I know he's supposed to be good I know he's supposed to be powerful um, but I've never to that intensity felt the question of where is he so, um, so for me I guess um, in terms of how do we address people's questions how do we address people's scepticism uh, towards Christianity I experienced my greatest scepticism towards Christianity when I was supposed to be a missionary so I've, I've got a lot of sympathy really for people who who have a hard time believing it and have questions and have doubts and, mm-hmm. and, and there's a long period that, that spun out after that prayer but, but thankfully it was I think what helped me a lot was um, one of the things that really helped me is um, when I left my house after praying that prayer I felt like I'd solved the problem of suffering okay I prayed God I don't think you're real and if you are real um, I don't think I like you and I thought well that's it I've been honest for the first time in my life I've faced the problem of suffering that I've been wrestling with for months head on and I'm going to go out into the world and uh, and now I've dealt with this suffering has been dealt with somewhat naively because I walked out of the house and there's the old woman begging and I walk down to the bus stop and there's the guy with no legs on the bus and I get off the bus and there's the kids living in the sewers and what I realise is um, suffering's a problem whether you're Christian or not so um, so I haven't resolved the problem of suffering and, and it kind of drove into me an awareness I guess that, um, that the questions Christians ask are um, the questions that people ask about Christianity aren't always questions just for Christians they're questions for everyone um, and we've kind of got to say well if suffering is a problem for everyone, what offers the best answer? Mm-hmm. And as I, I can kind of talk more about that, but I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of, of the range of arguments there are about suffering. I think what hit me the most was um, was the idea of, of Jesus Christ as God incarnate and the idea that, that God was not distant from our suffering, <coughs> but um, has come near us and suffered with us and for us. So for me, the concept of the crucified God was what drew me back. Christianity. So I guess guess what drew me into the line of work I do now is partly just an intensity sympathy towards people's doubts, towards people's scepticism, having gone mm-hmm. gone through that. Um, I mean, more 
I could tell you more of kind of beyond that. I guess, I guess in terms of what got me to the point of, of writing the book would be seeing a huge, partly seeing a huge gap between the way people outside the church seem to be perceived and described by people in the church and the way that they actually were. Um, and, and so trying to, wanting to help people understand, uh, and there's three groups that deal with in my book, atheists, nominal Christians, and spiritual, not religious people, and really wanting to help people understand what are those groups really like. So mm-hmm. I, was, I was in the, the, direct, the book draws a lot on experience and studies and original research, but the direct trigger for writing the book was being at the Burning Man Festival, which is a big kind of, um, I guess, kind of Hellenistic festival in the desert, um, where they erect a temporary town for about 20,000 residents um, every year in the middle of the Nevada desert. And it has this intense spirituality about it. It has a temple at the center, um, and, um, and, it, and it has another big big um, effigy of a man that they burn in this big cathartic act at the end of the week. And, and you would say this, lots of people call it neo-pagan, um, would be the way that they'd label it. And it would be the kind of heartland, I guess, of the most visible expression of what it means to be spiritual but not religious in the West. And I was there with a team of other people interviewing people. And, um, and, and it was so interesting to see this group of people who are popularly perceived by Christians as either slotting in the bracket of New Age or as being, you know, demonic and far from Christ or opposed to Christianity and just seeing the incredible amount of openness actually there was amongst people talking to Christ, uh, talking about Christ. As I interview people about, about where they've been through their lives up to that point, just seeing, gosh, this is a whole people group we really, really don't understand. So, so I guess as I got to know people who are not Christians, I realized that, that we're not understanding them well, we're not responding to them well, um, and, and when you do read a book about apologetics, it's mainly um, a set of answers that you should say to people mm-hmm. that are logically tenable for them. And I, I'm all for, I like apologetics, and I've studied it at, at university level, so I'm completely in favor of it, but I think it has to be connected to other things, like understanding the people we're working with, un- uh, the people we're trying to reach, understanding how we reach them, understanding that what may be a you know, watertight logical argument may also similarly seem completely irrelevant to most of the people around us. So, yeah. I'd like to also ask you something that I think we discussed in an email I'm sure my listeners be wondering about what the title of your book is about because honestly when I first started I thought is this going to be about universalism someone's saying that there aren't any non-Christians that everyone's really a Christian yeah what what is it about yeah so the book would be is called the myth of the non-Christian but you could call it the myth of the generic non-Christian would be a Mm. less snappy title Mm. so it's really I think there's a conception many Christians say to me as I'm someone who speaks a lot about mission um, how do we reach non-Christians and um, and you even get books how do we reach this generation how do we reach the nuns and the people outside the church and it's realizing that they're really non-Christian is is a term so broad as to be almost useless really 
Um, what, what do we mean by these people, or by, by a non-Christian? There's such a range of people. So the book is a, trying to think about, okay, how can we actually understand different groups within society so that we can contextualize and, and uh, adapt our approach to be appropriate for all these different groups in society instead of just having this kind of one-size-fits-all approach and this one-size-fits-all set of arguments that we think are going to convince everybody around us. Yeah, I'd like to tell people there is no silver bullet in evangelism. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. Let, let's look at the uh, groups that you talk about. I'm going to spend some time talking about each group in right now. The first one I, I mainly remember, and I think most people might remember it from this kind of place, is from before I got married, online dating sites. Which, yeah. yes. Yes, my wife and I, we'd sometimes watch television and there'd be a, a commercial coming up about an online dating site. Did you try that one, honey? Yeah, yeah, I tried it. Did you try it? Yes, yes, I tried it. Did you try it? Yeah, I've tried that one too. Yeah. <laughs> Now, by the way, I met my wife through a mutual friend, and we communicated on the internet, so none of those dating sites work for me. They do right, work for some they people. They do work for some people. I'm not going to deny that, but it, it, it didn't work for me. But one of the things you'd see on there when you were looking at someone's religious beliefs was they'd say spiritual, but not religious. And frankly, yeah. that never made any sense to me. It's like, what does right. that mean? Right, exactly. Yeah, and that's a pop. It's a popular term, isn't it? Spiritual, mm-hmm. not religious. Um, I mean, I guess there's two, there's two dimen. When a person says they're spiritual but not religious, they mm-hmm. could mean one of two different things, or at least they would land somewhere on a spectrum between mm-hmm. these two extremes. So, one is what we might refer to as an upwards or a, or a vertical spirituality, where people are reaching for. Um, the universe or the gods or um, some higher spirit or to God himself or herself or whatever um, and they're, they're striving to connect with the transcendent and mm-hmm. so they're reaching upwards to something um, and the other group would be outwardly spiritual or horizontally spiritual they're not so interested in connecting upwards with something transcendent they're interested in how can I make the world a better place Mm-hmm. How can I be somebody who who positively shapes this world around me? And so, um, and what those two groups have in um, people will be one or the other, or very often there'll be a blend of both, but with an accent towards one rather than the other. And very often that might be their aspiration to, or they like to think of themselves as people who would like to reach for the transcendent, and people who would like to make the world a better place. And they may not even be attempting to do those things, or they may be very activistic and passionate about those things uh, but what both those groups have in common is seeing um, the major religions and I guess within the West their reference point for that would, would be Christianity um, and, and a little bit Islam and Judaism um, seeing the major religions not as the best vehicle for connecting with the transcendent and for um, being a positive um, shaper of the world around them. So that's spiritual but not religious. So either reaching up to something or reaching out to the world around them and saying the best way to do that is not through what you Christians have. Mm. You know, part of this also is that I just got done reading a book by Bradley Wright about Christians are hate filled hypocrites and other lies you've been told. 
being a statistician, and one thing he says is when we look at groups like the nuns, for instance, we think, oh, they must all be atheists or opposed to God. Says, no, no, not really. A lot of them would fall into the category of spiritual but not religious. Yes, and, exactly. It's a completely neglected category, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that's right. Now, how how is it that we can reach these people? Because one of the things I'm thinking when I hear this is, the quote that's come from C.S. Lewis about how he says that one of his friends was afraid that England was falling into paganism again, yeah. and how he replied, if only it were true, because right. if someone's a pagan, they're one step closer to Christianity than the atheist is. Yes, well, it's great, isn't it? And I like that, that perspective mm-hmm. of Lewis, because I yeah. think, um, I, I do wonder what, uh, I mean, I had somebody say to me a couple of weeks after Burning Man, um, I really admire you for, go, for for going there. I said, oh, right, what do you mean? He said, just going somewhere where people are so hostile to God. Mm. I was like, oh, oh <laughs> they're not. I mean, I mean, no more so than any other sinner in this world. Um, mm-hmm. I think when you've got a group of people who have an interest in the transcendent, and have an interest in positively influencing the world. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity mm-hmm. to, to, <laughs> to connect mm-hmm. with them. I mean, at least those desires in in broadest terms are aligned with, with New Testament priorities, even if perhaps the specific expressions of them aren't yet in many people's lives. Mm-hmm. So what methodologies do you think we should do when we encounter people who say they're spiritual but not religious? Yeah, I, well, I would. That's a good question. I I think I would say, um, I mean, you've got to take people as individuals. So, so I'm breaking down these groups as a kind of midpoint between seeing everybody the same and treating absolutely everybody as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, broadly speaking, I think the question, um, I kind of compare it to um, to a flask of water. Um, so mm-hmm. you can kind of describe a flask of water to people and you can uh, or, or let's say it's something they haven't drunk before like someone's never had coca-cola you can describe coca-cola to them you can hold up the water bottle you can give arguments for the deliciousness of coca-cola but at some point really the thing that you're going to want to do if you want to inform someone fully about coca-cola is pour them a glass and give mm-hmm. them a sip and so I think with what we want to do of course it's important that we describe Christian spirituality and, and where necessary if we if we need to, to argue for it, then we also need to need to do that where there are specific objections to be discussed. But I think our accent with people who are spiritual or not religious would be to give them a taste of Christian spirituality. So so one example of that for the outwardly spiritual person, are there ways to partner with them or draw them into beneficial service to the world um, if our churches are involved in caring for the homeless or feeding the poor or these kinds of things can we create space for people who are not Christians to come in and be involved in that that would be a very attractive entry point for outwardly spiritual people and I write in my book actually about um, someone who takes mission trips every year down to um, down to Tampa in Florida to a very poor area of, um, of, of that city and um, 
takes them, majority not Christian, and some Christians, and says, look, it's a spiritual learning experience, and we're going to be serving the broken and the poor in this area, and we'd love you to be part of it. And they invite people into that, and then they have kind of reflection and discussion times. And um, and I've seen many people actually come to Christ mm-hmm. through that, um, because it gives them an opportunity actually to see what does it mean to love the world and to be sent on mission out into the world with Christ. So I'm, I'm doing that with a bunch of Christians now, actually. Now that I've seen a little bit of the kingdom, maybe I'm a little more open to the king. So that would be one way to connect, would be kind of outwardly <coughs> spiritual fake. Now, there is some caution that a lot of us me projects fear might have, because one of the things you point to is that Christianity can offer a richer spiritual experience. And yeah. the thing is, unfortunately, many of us in me projects, when we hear the word experience, we go mm-hmm. on the defensive immediately, because it, it sounds like it's entering the realm of a subjective and such, and you say, well, Mormons have an experience right. as well and such. So, so what do we do there? Yeah, um, I... I think our message to everybody is Christ and him crucified. Mm-hmm. So here's this person, and here's the Easter event of his death and resurrection. That, that's the heart of our message. I don't think we're, we're simply selling people that experience. So, for right. example, in, in taking those mission trips, it wasn't simply that they gave them a nice experience. They also said, look, a little bit of what you've tasted is us living in obedience to Christ. Mm. reaching out to these people and uh, and I think actually it makes most sense if you want to be someone who positively shapes the world mm. to be on board with Jesus agenda so so you are always going to be wanting to point people to Christ um, at the same time I think that that the fact that something is rational doesn't mean that it's only rational and the mm. fact that somebody's uh, <coughs> and I mean if if somebody were to say that the gospel is logical I don't know whether that's exactly how I'd phrase it but the fact that something's logical doesn't mean it's only logical. It's more than that. It's, it can be compelling. It can be beautiful. It can be kind of experientially kind of irresistible. And so it's okay. <laughs> You're not denying the rationality of the gospel to present to people its beauty or to show people how wonderful it is in practical experience. In no way does that have to be an alternative to an emphasis on the rationality of the gospel, mm-hmm. I, th- I think I think the two go- I think the two go hand in hand, right. and um, and I don't think we want to stereotype spiritual not religious people that they're all about experience. Many of them have very cutting questions, especially mm-hmm. about um, quite how religion and Christianity has managed to legitimise certain things throughout its history. So um, so yeah, I mean, I have a chapter on how to answer their questions. And I have a chapter on what you should do with them, because I think both are important, what you do and what you say. Unfortunately, I think apologetics falls into the trap of um, what do I say? And then if it ever contextualizes, it thinks, what should I say to this group? Whereas I think apologists probably also need to think, what do we do? Would be a good question to go alongside that. Yeah, if I was going to compare your book to any other book, I think I would compare it to Greg Kokor's Tactics, okay. for instance. Now, uh, Michael Sherrard's book on relational apologetics, and I interviewed, I've interviewed both of them. I think those would be good comparisons. Uh, you talk about the kind of criticisms the spiritual but not religious have of Christianity. What kind of things are we talking about? So, um, so if people see um, spirituality as upwardly connecting with God or outwardly making the world a better place uh, one question would 
one set of questions would be about whether the church has or is making the world a better place, um, whether its scriptures offer a mandate for doing so, especially in the Old Testament, um, where it might even be personal experiences of the church doing bad things. It might just be that they read in the news the idea that the church is a bit homophobic um, or they know about the Crusades and sometimes Christians' complicity in the slave trade. Um, so that, that would kind of be for those with, a, with an outward spirituality. Um, those of an upward spirituality might feel that um, doctrines and beliefs um, that are clearly defined would be restrictive of spiritual experience rather than empowering of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that, that would be upwards. People would worry that it would, you know, clear beliefs and community structures kill life and people of an outwards perspective worry about what scripture teaches what the church is doing and did do in the past I guess would be the question so quite less kind of logical questions more experiential questions more but not not more experiential how would I put it more more about what's happening the what the church does and enables than what the church says let's look at the outwards then first now if for me, usually, uh, I'm much more reason-oriented, I think, than a lot of other people are. My wife yeah. handles the empathy. I handle the, the, the <laughs> reason. I, I, I was even talking to a, to a friend of ours yesterday. In fact, she's a teacher who first discovered my wife is quite like the on the autism spectrum, which we found out, yes, she is, and she and I both yeah. are with Asperger's. And I said, you know, empathy is just something I struggle with. If someone tells me a problem, it's like, I know I should feel some great care and such, but a lot of times I just yeah. frankly don't. And she said, yeah, I can understand that. And so someone comes to me and suppose they have an objection about, say, the Crusades, for instance. Now, I've read yeah. some history. I don't know what I can say about the Crusades. But I think what you're telling me is jumping straight into, here's the real history of the Crusades, and here are some leading scholars in the field. is probably not the best, most convincing way to go. Right, I mean, probably not, maybe. I I mean, at the same time, I would say to you, be yourself. Um, I don't think it, it, you know, like, be comfortable with who you are. Um, It's part of presenting an attractive spirituality to people. If being a Christian doesn't give you a sense in the first instance of of some, some degree of ease with yourself, whatever your particular uniquenesses are, then, then I think that's probably going to be be a drawback in conversation with people. So just, just well, I guess, living in God's grace is helpful, isn't it? So the way yeah. we relate to people. But, uh, but having said that, yeah, um, empathising with, with people. Um, you're right. I, I don't know that generally speaking we want to leap into to the to the crusade any more than when people ask about the church and homophobia. Are they really asking for a biblical theology of sexuality so much as they're asking? are you accepting of people who are different than you? Um, and that might really be the hard question. So getting what's the question behind the question mm-hmm. is is good. Um, I mean, I might say to somebody who asked me about the Crusades, I'd say, well, you know, A, I'm really embarrassed about them, <laughs> and not particularly embarrassed as a Christian, and I think they're contrary to Christ's teaching. I mean, secondly, I don't think we normally have the full story about the Crusades. We can talk about that if you like, or, or maybe maybe there's something else that, that bothers you a bit more about the church 
so there's no reason you can't answer that I wouldn't lead with a full massive explanation of it mm -hmm. um, so I guess I'd offer the opening for people to explore that I find asking get, if you can ask people um, I think that one of the most helpful things you can ask somebody um, when they have a question or objection to the Christian faith is why do you say that mm -hmm. or um, or tell, tell me what you, you know. What do you think about that? Um, Francis Schaeffer's uh, Francis Schaeffer said that if he had 55 minutes with somebody, if he had an hour with somebody, he'd spend 55 minutes asking questions to figure out what, what was at the heart of the matter, and five minutes offering a response. So mm -hmm. I would I get to the heart of where someone's coming from, and with many spiritual religious people, not all. There might be that you discover a really rational, logical approach is great but mm. or evidential mm. approach but it, it might be just a story like you know what the crusades were terrible but you know what blows my mind is is i think when people do take jesus seriously we get people like martin luther king we get people like mother Teresa or desmond tutu and uh, and i can see people have got it wrong but it's pretty beautiful isn't it when people do take jesus seriously mm. and we take his, his leave from him have you have you really have you looked into the life of jesus at all. So, uh, that, or you know, somebody says, "Oh, I feel like Christianity, you know, doctrines destroy my my uh, and belief, clear beliefs destroy my experience of God." You could talk a little about the experience of God, but say, "Look, here's the thing: I didn't find my discovery of Christ killed my spirituality. I found it opened up my spirituality because it began to give me a picture. As I saw, Jesus said, "Whoever's seen me has seen the Father." It began to give me a clearer picture of who I was praying to. And it, and it really opened up a whole new world for me. It wasn't the end of a quest. It was an opening of a much more kind of successful and fruitful quest for knowing God. So in as much, very frequently, not always, but very frequently, some kind of story would be helpful. But, I mean, you don't have to be super emotional about it. You don't, you don't have to be kind of dripping empathy to be able to tell someone a story <laughs> yeah. that connects with them. But let's talk about the upwards-oriented people then, as yeah. well, because uh, I mean, a lot of Christians could share the same idea. I mean, they look at debates about doctrine as cold and boring, and geez, what difference does this Trinity thing really make, and things of that sort. So a lot yeah. of Christians could really resonate with that, but what what is the importance of doctrine? How can we present that to the spiritual but not religious? Yeah. Um and Christians say that, don't they, a lot? Yes. But, but at the same time, I don't. I think it's a reaction, isn't it? Maybe I don't know what you think. I think it. That's quite. A, that's a reaction, but behind a kind of, um, maybe it's sometimes a misuse and an, a, and a, a dryness when all that is involved is concepts and not the fact that that perhaps some of these beliefs should <laughs> lead us into experience of Christ and not just be a talking endless talking point for us um i mean all every christians had some aspect of scripture and some aspect of christian doctrinal belief which has profoundly affected them i mean one of the ones i mentioned in my book is about my wife who um lost her father at a young age and um and felt this sense just overwhelming sense of his absence because he, he is a wonderful man and um, and she'd known up to that point, okay, God is called the Father. But mm -hmm. I think that gave her, that image of God as Father 
gave her a really rich understanding of who she was praying for. And she mm-hmm. um and it began to it conveyed to her that God was an unfailing and unlimited version of everything she that she'd lost and that God's presence and protection and care and affirmation were were deeper and more enduring than a human parent could provide. So this image so if you, every Christian's got a story where it's God as what is something from scripture, something from Christian belief which has profoundly affected you? The Holy Spirit is the idea that God dwells in you, not as a force, but as a person willing and desiring your transformation for the better. Mm. You know, like, I, I don't think there's any Christian who's not had um, an aspect of Christian belief frame their spiritual experience. So I would advise Christians to tell stories about how aspects of, of, of kind of <coughs> Christian belief have framed their spiritual experience for the better. Yeah. I, I think I could compare it to having a marriage relationship where I tell people, boy, I love my wife so much. Let me tell you all about the love I have for my wife. Let me tell you all about the experiences I have in my wife and such. Oh, well, that, that sounds great. Can you tell me much about her? Well, I don't really know much about her, but let me keep telling you about the, <laughs> the love that I have for her and such. Yeah, but, but what, what does she like? I, I, I don't know. I just don't know much about her. But I mean, that would sound utterly bizarre. Mm-hmm. Right, it would sound weird, wouldn't it, if you mm-hmm. hadn't got to know a little bit about them. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I don't know how many spiritual... The, the curious thing is... Um, there are a mix of people spiritual not religious but many people don't have a church background and don't have um, isn't that study out of Gordon Conwell Seminary recently that said something like 86% of non-Christians don't know a Christian um, mm. personally and, and so people just have these I mean the number of times I don't know about you but I've had to have that conversation which is like it, where it gets to the heart of what somebody's question is with you and it's like I can't possibly believe in a bearded man living up on the clouds <laughs> like where on earth have you got this from like, I, I, I don't, don't believe, believe in that either exactly right and so you're um, so sometimes this is really basic belief correction you know mm. I believe there's a good all loving spirit out there right okay that's that's also what we believe mm. <laughs> only more so and um, and more richly understood and explained um yeah, and I think the idea of Trinity is tremendously useful for us, um, really. Um, the idea that that the world is, the, if, that God is a set of relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, not just that he loves relationship or made relationship, but God is a relationship. Right. And, and then the world and humanity as an overflow of who God is. And so the universe is fundamentally not only moral, um, but it's also fundamentally at its absolute core relational mm-hmm. um, is a beautifully attractive thing to explain to people who don't realize that Christianity does have this beautiful spirituality at its heart actually that you're not just tapping into a force that relationship itself is at the heart of the universe mm-hmm. and what about those of us who just don't really find ourselves too much on the empathy level like you said earlier and don't really relate the experiences to well and such. How how can we talk to people who are spiritual but not religious? Yeah, um, I think say um, I think it's unlikely that you're you're without experience. Right. I think, uh, my guess would be that your experiences aren't always super emotional, mm-hmm. but but there will be be ways that you could 
relay those. But I think asking questions is always helpful, isn't it, in conversation? Yeah. So, so people, you know, just say, look, the way I understand God is is as Father, as Trinity, or what, whatever I saw as revealed in Christ, or whatever aspect of God you you choose to speak about to to convey that He is personal, and and, and share a little bit like this shapes the way that I understand God. So I do know I can talk to Him all the time and he is listening to me and I am accepted on the basis not of what I do but of what he's done for me and and so this gives me a tremendous amount of confidence as I talk to God because I see him through the prism of, of who Jesus is or I see him as a father and you could ask somebody well I mean what it, how would it affect your spirituality if you saw God as a person mm-hmm. and not just as a force or a power or if, mm-hmm. if God could be described as father how might that reshape the way you live? So instead of massively pouring out endless verbiage about your own experience, you could just ask people, if this were true, how would that affect your your experience? Might be a helpful way to go. Yeah, I'm saying that someone like me who is much more intellectually oriented and, you know, we mm-hmm. talk about how our life is, my wife would be greatly blessed by hearing a beautiful song at a worship service and such. Yeah. Me, I think, oh, that was pretty. Oh, look at this book that I'm reading. Wow. <laughs> now, and that, that is what will get me going. And yeah, such, yeah. And I'm thinking, someone like myself who's much more oriented that way, mm-hmm. if you want to know about how we can reach God, maybe we could say, let me talk to you about the incarnation. Mm-hmm. For instance, maybe I wouldn't use the word incarnation. Right. But, I mean, for us, we can do what we like to do best in this world. Point back to the person of Jesus. Right, exactly. Any way you can speak honestly to people about Jesus, ask questions about their experience. Mm-hmm. The if this were true question is one that, that, that doesn't impact people. But I don't think you need to dress it up. Like, I think one of the things, I mean, another kind of outwork of Trinity, isn't it? But mm-hmm. God... God doesn't just create diversity, God is diversity. He mm-hmm. is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And and I think that spills over even into spiritual experience. It's okay that your emphasis is more cerebral. It's okay that other people may lean more towards the emotional or what you might call the experiential. That's all right. I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't dress it up. You could just say, Well, this is the way I tend to be but mm-hmm. um but let me ask you this question if this were true and really as I think about point of a person Jesus the spiritual but not religious for the most part they tend to like Jesus anyway don't they they do don't they yeah mm. how much they know about him yeah is not always so clear <laughs> yeah and it, it's very hard for people when they want to argue against the person of Jesus. Some people do it, but usually Jesus as a person, I mean, even most every single major religion that's come about since Christianity, they all have to do something with Jesus, and yep. even today, Hindus and Buddhists who were there before Christianity, they still want to do something with Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I I, I think that's the thing. You do have a kind of winner there when you, when you yeah. frequently, when you ask people what they think about Jesus. Mm-hmm. and they tend to be positively inclined and you say well have, have you read the stories of his life and they say no <laughs> I mean in all honesty I, I'm, this isn't like a tactic because I just have a curiosity about people I say well I would be really curious as to what you made of them 
if you read them, would, would you be up for reading a bit of it and telling me what you think? So, I mean, I guess when I do evangelism training with people, I kind of say, what's the shortest route to Jesus <coughs> in your conversation is helpful? And get them on to considering him for themselves, because then they'll have a they'll have a clearer picture of what you're discussing. Well, let's move on then to the next group we talk about. Now, when we talk about the spiritual but not religious, a lot of these people are not very anti-Christian. Yeah. So much they're very open. But when we come to this next group, there will be some who will describe themselves as very much anti-Christian. And that's the group right. of atheists, agnostics, and skeptics. And that's one a lot of apologists spend their time talking yeah. about. How do we reach these people? Yes, how do we reach them? Um, well, here's probably the area where traditional apologetics, to some degree, is is at its strongest. Mm-hmm. Um, because because um, I think this is where a lot of the development of arguments is focused at the moment, mm-hmm. um, is to responding to the likes of Dawkins and and Hitchens and Shermer and all the other pantheon of um, atheist greats. So. Um, yeah, I think it's to some degree we're working well on the answers. I don't think we're always understanding who atheists are. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think all atheists are Dawkins, <laughs> right. for, a st- for a start. Um, so we want to be able to, but quite often they are aware of or have been influenced by by the sorts of things that he and others are writing. So we're going to be need to be able to address those things well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people say they're atheist and it's a default for not having any particular viewpoint mm-hmm. um, some people are atheist um, so for example the, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology um, showed that people who uh, I'll quote you here those who endorsed their, uh, a major study about anger towards God revealed that those who endorsed their religious beliefs as atheist and agnostic or none unsure reported more anger towards God than those who reported a religious affiliation. Mm-hmm. So statistically more, and, and we don't want to, I don't like the stereotype of the angry atheist because most atheists I know are pretty kind of level-headed, normal, pleasant people. But, you know, some, some atheists really have experienced a real disappointment with God. Mm-hmm. And there's something bubbling right under there which has absolutely <clears throat> nothing to do with the intellectual questions that, that they're putting across. Um, so I, I guess first of all just, just having that empathy, having that understanding of what kind of atheist you're engaging with would, would be a helpful starting point um, and what you do with them um, I think it's big picture, it's creating safe spaces um, for people um, but spaces within conversation and relationship where you can explore their questions together because often they have a lot of questions um, and and then other ways you can do that. I described that you can do that with groups or the way that your whole <coughs> church feels like a place that someone who is an atheist or agnostic comes in with a bunch of questions <coughs> and doubts doesn't feel out of place feels like okay I'm this is legitimate for me to to come here and and bring all my questions with me yeah, I'd encourage everyone to listen to a show we did back in February with pastor of my church back in Knoxville, Tennessee, when we lived there, Matthew Peepers of The Point, and how something I really liked about church there was, when you went in, 
Ray didn't tell you to put your phones away. Ray told you to keep them out. Why? Because that way, if you had a question during the service, you could text it into a number, and at the end, the pastor would come out, and he would answer your question. And right. sometimes he'd say, you know, this is a much deeper question. I'm going to put up a video log later this week of my answering it. But that was always a part that I really appreciated. And frankly, as an apologist, that was probably my favorite part of every service was seeing the questions people were asking and how they were being answered. Right, exactly, and acknowledging that, that there are difficulties. And it's great that that was integrated into the life of the church. So it's not always a choice between, you know, does a church have to be a hyper-academic, you know, apologetically oriented church, or does it have to be a Bible-teaching church? It can be both. As yeah. you go through the passages of Scripture, difficulties yeah. are going to arise and you can address some of those directly and some of them you can say look there may be other stuff i haven't picked up on here like you say and i think that's a brilliant approach from your pastor mm -hmm. text it in and we'll talk about that that's great yeah now i like the idea you had and i wouldn't mind trying to implement this with my church once i've been there a bit longer and have a bit more reputation it was kind of sort of a uh, agnostics anonymous group yeah could you tell us about that yeah, so Agnostics Anonymous is um, from a, a friend and mentor of mine called Michael Green, who's um, been knocking around for many years doing evangelism in different countries. He's, he's in his 80s now, but still incredibly active. And um, he says this is one of the um, approaches to sharing Jesus, which he's found is, whereas many others have come and gone, this one endures through the, through the decades. And it's a very simple one. Um, it's basically a, a low-key gathering over food. Um, and, and the first time you meet with people, it's if you have a few friends who are skeptical, just say, for example, what, and it's adaptable, but the way he likes to do it is to say, look, why don't we get together for food? Um, there's a few friends I have who are skeptical, like yourself, and, and I, why don't, I'd love to hear us all share. You guys share why you don't believe, and I'll share with you why I do believe. And so um, you do it in a kind of social setting, somebody's house, um, you eat food. And so you're not sneaking up on people. You're telling people, look, we're having a structured conversation about this. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like you to be in on it. And, um, and then every, we say, okay, let's, uh, over dinner, everybody shares why they don't believe and, and the, the Christian doesn't respond to any of it, just listens to it. And mm -hmm. then at the end, gives a short talk, less than 10 minutes, um, maybe referencing some of the things that have been mentioned already and say okay what would you think about getting together and exploring a few more of these and very often when people have had a good time just feeling like okay this is a space where I'm heard and I can air what I think but also this guy's got an intriguing perspective they think okay I'd like to continue um, continue coming to this and then there's different ways to do it My, Michael says one way that he's done it before is just to go look what I picked up on was five major themes here, you know, it might be um, science, suffering, the resurrection and this. Uh, what if we made those? What if we just got together? Um, a few other times, doesn't have to necessarily be weekly. There's all sorts of ways to schedule stuff, isn't there, with hmm. our, dev our devices these days. But what if we get together next time we talk about the first one of these and you guys come with your questions and thoughts and uh, on this and I'll come with mine and then kind of repeat. The other way is um, that Michael sometimes say, look, um, you've got a whole range of questions. I think it'd be really helpful for you 
to go back to the source material, um, which is the stories of Jesus in the New Testament. So what would you think if we spent a few weeks together just talking about different stories and, and we can each read a passage, you, you say what you think about it, I'll share what I think about it, and we can have a little more of the same kind of discussion we've had now. And he, he's seen a lot of people come to Christ through this. And obviously it's something that that we can all we can adapt in different ways. But he says what's nice about it, and I've done this kind of thing with him actually in some uh, places. What works really well about it is it's just so low-key. Mm. It's just having dinner, but you've told people what the topic is before, um, and you're giving them permission and space to say what they think. And you've also got a little bit of space to come back at them yourself on, on, on in a very gentle way on, on what you think. And so mm-hmm. I, it's a, people feel very relaxed about that. People are afraid, perhaps, to be preached to <laughs> or to ha- be in the minority. But when you've got, you know, four people who aren't Christians and one or two who are, it's not a very intimidating environment for people to go into. Uh, I can't help but think, it's not atheist, but it's the same principle applies, that when I lived in Charlotte before I got married, my roommate and I were both really big into apologetics, and we we had Mormons come by our house, which thought, oh, this is wonderful, this is exactly the kind of thing we love, and so then they said, where we're, we like to come by next week and discuss these matters again. Sure, sure. And what we started doing every week when they came by, we stopped at Little Caesars because they had the hot and ready five dollar deer. We got yeah, pizza. Yeah. We got some Gatorade that we could all drink together. And when they came over, they had a feast like that waiting. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, because I mean, if you're a Mormon missionary, we know that they had to spend all their money. That they were saving up. They had a free meal when they came over. And there was even one time they called and said, you know, we really can't make it because of the rain and our cars broken down and such. And I said, you want a meat day? Yeah. I said, where are you at? And he said, why? You tell me, I'll drive over and I'll pick you up. <laughs> and, but the whole thing also was that I thought at the same time when I had in the car, I've got a captive audience. I can give these guys the gospel. They are not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No, it's brilliant. And, you know, it's really biblical, actually. Yeah. So one of my friends, a, a Kenyan guy, says, uh, who's um, living in Britain, was telling me a while back that if you read through the Gospel of Luke, almost every scene is either Jesus eating, Jesus leaving a meal, or Jesus going to a meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though kind of um, there aren't really any paintings of tubby fat Jesus, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I guess he's kind of walking it off in between the meals. But mm-hmm. um, but it says in you know in Matthew the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and it does seem like this is very much Jesus' method was to sit and eat and talk with people, and um, and yeah, it's great that you did that too with your Mormon friends. Yeah. And something else I think is advantageous about your approach with having these informal meetings is that anyone could really host them. And the person who hosts them, they don't have to be the apologist themselves. I mean, someone no, from my no. church could say, I want to host one of these events, and then they get discussed and say, hey, I'd like to have a friend come by who's really looked at these questions next time, and he'd be glad to discuss them. Would you all be open to that? And I think most people would say yes, and they made this person could call me up and say, hey, I know this is what you like. Would you like to come by and discuss these kinds of questions? And all you have to do is is 
if you're not that scared yet, go find a person in your church who is. Have them come over. And someone like myself, I would jump at the opportunity to do something like that. Yeah, and it's so easy, isn't it? I was, mm-hmm. did, an, did an apologetic seminar, same thing, at, at church last week. And somebody came up to me after and said, I, you know, keep inviting my friend to church and he won't come. He's, so he's got all these questions. Yeah. And I said to him, that he's a university, this is for the student group, uh, university student group at church. And I said, well, tell him to pick a question and um, tell him you're buying pizza. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and invite me and tell them we'll just we'll have a discussion about it bring any friends who want to come it's so easy isn't it to do it so yes. it's, not very, it's not very high tech mm-hmm. yeah. but what about in our day and age people who for instance that you find on the internet you can't have those people come over for pizza and let's face it this is where we'll find a lot of people who fit into the, the oh, idea God. of the angry atheist I know it's mad isn't it and, yeah. and I mean here's room for one of your listeners who wants to write a book on how to engage with atheists online because there's just a painful degree of unreasonableness mm-hmm. and confrontationality if that's a word and I just yeah I exactly that that is hard and and I despair of it and I know many very talented apologists who don't bother online mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. um I don't really know I mean I I guess the one way I've ever found that particularly helpful is if you can, if there's a means to develop that into a more one-on-one conversation um, through kind of private instant messaging or something, um, even to drop a message and go, listen, I saw that you were, you know, were firing a bit back and forth about this, and I was just wondering whether you wanted to talk a bit more about it here. That that might be one way to go, but frankly. I struggle with that myself as well, how you engage mm-hmm. people online, because it's very easy for them to to objectify you and to treat you as whatever worst stereotype they have of Christians. I guess the only thing you can do is be insanely polite and kindly and hope that even if they don't notice, other people will. But, yeah, that is hard. I don't have great solutions to how you, how you engage the angry online person. Mm-hmm. I was just just calmly and patiently pointing things out, asking. I mean, I asked a guy. This guy was. I was online actually the other day. It's the first time in about a year I've had one of these online discussions, and um, and the person put like um, they were going off on all the usual stuff about you know, oh, I don't believe in Zeus and you don't believe in Yahweh. It's all the same thing. And I said, I'm just curious how many. How many books have you read by Christians, or how much Christian theology have you read? Mm-hmm. And he's like, he replied, "What's that got to do with anything?" I said, "It's just it would be hard for you to make the arguments you're making if if you knew anything about what Christians believe." Um, so I'm curious where you're getting what your sources are for this. And um, and he basically admitted he'd read no more than two or three books yes. ever on the topic. So I don't know if there's a way to maybe use questions to penetrate where where arguments don't. Yeah, I, I often like to ask people, okay, when was the last time you read a scholarly work that disagreed with right. you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about when I heard uh, uh, I think Victor Singer it was on Unbelievable debating, he's the atheist talking about how everyone just stays and they don't interact. They don't. They don't 
interact with ideas that disagree with him and such. And when he comes to yeah, yeah. talk about Bob, he says, well, I rely on Bar Derman. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, I'm not telling you don't read Bar Derman. Don't you kind of see the contradiction you've created there? I know, I despair of it. And, mm-hmm. and he's so on the fringe, isn't he, of, um, of New Testament scholarship, really. He's the absolute mm-hmm. outlier of it but he confirms what people wish were true mm-hmm. and and that's what it becomes tremendously hard to um unless a person is is willing to have a um willing even to have a reasonable discussion it's very hard to get anywhere with that mm-hmm. and i i i what you were saying about how hard-headed it can seem sometimes because I usually talk about what I call presupposition or atheism where mm-hmm. it starts off with saying we are atheists we are atheists because we are rational if you are rational you do not believe in anything theistic right. anything supernatural whatsoever and therefore I don't really need to interact with your opinion on people on your side because you're automatically stupid because you're not atheists like we are and we're automatically rational and since we're rational everything we say is automatically brilliant Right, it's so circular, isn't it? Right. If you make a theistic argument, you're automatically an idiot. They're like, mm-hmm. well, I don't even know why I'm in this conversation with you right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mad. I mean, so how to engage online is one very interesting question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess my book's assuming relationship with people. Right. We used to have we used to have these events on campus when I was working in university campus ministry in the UK, where we would just have have it open for people to ask any question and you phrase it as like you know gorilla christian or if you could ask god one question or whatever you want to call it and i have to admit people's questions were poor they yes. they were really really bad questions because they didn't know what they were talking about so right. i completely scrapped doing that because I, and i tried to say if I, I and i'd run events like that now but i go look i, I really want to hear your questions but let me first outline for you a little bit of what we believe and why we believe it, even if it's 10, 15 minutes um, before we, at the beginning of one of those events, to go, um, you know, I'm not going to answer all your questions, but I want to give a little focus to your questions. And I found at least in terms of events, that, give, that gives people some, something a little more to focus on. And I guess you can do the same thing conversationally, can't you, when people are coming out with crazy stuff. You go, do, you, do you even know what I believe? Can I share with you a little bit of what I believe? And and it doesn't answer their questions, but it stops them from asking stupid questions. Yeah, I find with those kinds of things, the, uh, the one of the signs for me of a bankruptcy of atheism today mm-hmm. is that as uh, someone who really studies New Testament history especially, they've jumped so much on the bandwagon of mythicism. Mm-hmm. And, like, and, you know, you are, you are to make fun of younger creationists and such if if you hold to mythicism, you have no basis whatsoever for mm-hmm. that kind of mockery. And yet, this is seen as intellectually, I mean, right? People can even say, well, you know, historians, we're not even sure that Jesus even existed. Like, Please, which historians are you reading? I read them. This is not a debate. Mm-hmm. I know, it, and that stuff, it's mm-hmm. certain things filter down, don't they, and circulate yes. as common knowledge. And that's why especially where those questions are right. I mean, I'm not of a particular school of apologetics. I guess I'm happy right. to probably like, mo- in real terms, none of us are, are we? We all steal from everywhere. But I think that's where the evidential comes in quite mm. helpfully. 
with people who say that because often the people mm. who want to think themselves rational who are confronted with data and find they don't have any data in return of their own mm. um, may then, if you can do that in a kindly and gentle <laughs> way, um, may may then become incredibly open to mm. what you're saying to realise that, or if not open, might at least cock half an ear your direction, mm. um, realising that that you might have some thought lying behind what you're saying. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone right now that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest right now is Luke Cawley. We're talking about his book, The Myth of the Non-Christian. But if you're here this next Saturday, since technically we're already in the week, if you're here Saturday on the 14th, we've got a very interesting show lined up. Have you all been paying attention to this whole talk about the bathrooms at Target and what's going on there and so many people are wondering what about this transgender movement is there any basis to it such where I'm going to have a guest on my show who's Christian who went from being a man to a woman to a man quote unquote with all that and that's Walt Heyer and he runs the website Sex Change Regret so next week we are going to be talking a lot about the transgender issue so if you are really interested in this debate Please be listening next Saturday. For now, we're going to get back to Luke Carley here. Now, um, something else I find with atheists today is that there is pretty much what I call soundbite thinking going on. You just toss out this slogan, that's enough, and the main illustration of this that you'll find on the Internet is Mm -hmm. the meme. Yeah. You know, memes can be funny, they can be good punchlines and such, but I don't care what your worldview is, a meme is never an argument. It can illustrate an argument, but it should never be the argument itself. No, no, and I, I agree. And mm. um, I've taken to creating memes back yeah. in, in, in response and just um, posting them underneath that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, people that... They, that's not usually even coming from the heart of the person who posted it, is it? No. It's a, I think that the meme is an easy um, kind of... If you want to win an argument without upsetting anybody, arguing against a meme is a pretty easy way to do it online because usually the person who posted it doesn't didn't write the meme. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you, right. you know, it says, you know, uh, something about... I don't know if you found a meme about... Um, you know Iceland and what a wonderful country like the one that was going Uh, on what what a wonderful country Iceland is and you kind of point out that it has a massive Christian heritage Mm -hmm. and um, or if you point out that the morals they're applauding are more consistent with Christianity than with secular humanism any number of ways you can come back at that Mm -hmm. in in a kind of gently kindly poke back at it Um, I don't I think there are ways to do that without and if someone's not especially abrasive of upsetting them so I think the meme's easy because if they didn't write it they're not invested in it in the same way as they might be and yeah. I, I think as well I mean apologetically I, I when I'm like training people I kind of um, say to people you've, you've got um, several levels of question you've got what people say and then you've kind of what, what people think and what's going on in the head and what's going on in the heart mm-hmm. behind behind that. And I think we need to be able to answer the things they say to show people to um, the term so to show people that Christianity is plausible, to show people that that you know you're not an idiot for believing that. 
but I don't think even amongst the hardened atheists I don't think by argument alone will mm. we win people to Christ I think there has to be a broader set of things going on which I describe in the book actually as um, being necessary to someone coming to Christ so winning the argument usually its greatest value is to reassure rational people that they're not idiots yeah. rather than to kind of intellectually conquest them into the kingdom. Yeah, my friend and mentor, uh, Gary Habermas, for instance, who's been on the show twice, mm-hmm. has talked about the three kinds of doubt that exist, emotional, intellectual, and volitional doubt. Yeah. And volitional, for those who don't know, is the doubt of the will. Someone just essentially doesn't want to believe. And I think a lot of atheism presents intellectual doubts on the surface, but underneath there's much more emotional and volitional doubt. Yeah, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. I think that all those levels are there. And I think mm-hmm. we have to have respect for the reality of the intellectual mm-hmm. um, without treating it as a sole thing going on. So we have... Because many atheists I meet who have these objections and questions, they're not chucking them out there as a um, kind of summer. They're not all chucking it out as a red herring or a defense mechanism against having yeah. heartfelt conversations. It is something they really think. We have mm. to take them seriously as, as rational people in terms of answering that, but but n- but not stopping there. Um, yeah. Uh, and I, I like, sorry, go on. Go ahead. No, um, no, I'm done. <laughs> but I, I think you need, I think there's, um, yeah. I'm thinking about what John Lennox has said once he says if a man will not listen to reason reason is not his problem right exactly and and that was what I was going to say to you I quite often in giving talks um, will kind of read these two quotes so one is from um, Phil Daniels who's a British actor and he was interviewed in in a newspaper and recently and asked um, what's your greatest fear in life and he says, my greatest fear is that I, as an atheist, am right. Mm. Um, and then the other um, one is from the famous quote from Thomas Nagel, the atheist philosopher, oh, yes. who says that it, I don't want it to be true, and it annoys me that there are intelligent Christians out there and intelligent believers in God. I wi- it's not just that I don't think it's true, so I wish it weren't true. Mm. And I kind of would draw, often kind of visibly draw a scale for people here's Phil Daniels on this end here's Thomas Nagel on this end mm-hmm. where do you think you are on mm-hmm. the scale right now and even have them talk about it you know because so, it's helpful I say to people look it's helpful for you to understand yourself coming into this discussion do you want it to be true <laughs> uh, or do you wish it weren't true um, yeah I've, I've done that quite a bit actually in terms of helping people place themselves on the scale yeah. and uh, I'm thinking about there are some people out there who are atheists, and frankly, one of the reasons they're atheists, sadly, is because they're doing something or they've done something they know Christianity condemns, mm-hmm. and they don't want to stop that. And it leads me to the saying that you know a man will either accept justification from Christ or he's going to try and justify himself in some other way. Yeah, yeah. I- and that's a good I mean all these things if we can convert these into questions what would it mean for you yeah. to follow Jesus right what, what is it that attracts you to that mm. what is it that pushes you away 
from that because I think there's a continual dance going on with everybody atheist or not atheist which is mm-hmm. um, I think the passage which always sums it up for me in scripture is, is when Jesus goes to the tombs and there's that, that demon possessed guy um, kind of running around naked self harming in the graveyard and um, Joseph think is a beautiful picture of God that that's who God's hanging out with in mm-hmm. when he becomes human this is the kind of person he wants to hang out with but he he goes into the graveyard and the man runs up to him throws himself on his knees towards him so in the one sense he's flying headfirst towards God and then he says to Jesus go away from me mm-hmm. and that's I think that's the tear everyone's got really in the one sense the more they glimpse of Christ the more they are drawn towards him mm-hmm. at the same sense there is you know the complete loss of autonomy um, and the complete other perceived losses that we have that make us kind of at the same time run towards a man and say go away from me mm-hmm. and I think everybody before they come to Christ and frequently for us after we come to Christ is caught yeah. in that tear between attraction and running towards and running away yeah, I was talking with some people last night about dealing with addictions and such and one of the things I'd said was you know, in our that rise about someone who's an alcoholic, for instance, picks up the bottle again, even though they know it's going to bring them depression in the long run. It doesn't make any sense to us, but we all do those kinds of things. And mm-hmm. I said, well, let me give you something to consider. And so here's something I've thought about this issue. For these, every single one of you right now, you have a potential to be happy right now. And the reason you are not happy is because you truly do not want to be because somewhere inside you realize if you're going to be happy you have to do X, Y, Z you might have to give something up and you can't imagine happiness without that or you might have to face something uncomfortable or something frightening and you can't imagine being happy with that and it's easier to live in pain with what someone is addicted to than to release it and find the happiness that's waiting for them yeah no, I think that's completely true, isn't it? Yeah. And um, and getting to a point where we can have that honest conversation is, <laughs> is, is really a good thing. And I guess it's, it's, it's not easier because yeah. there's another set of challenges. But in some sense, it's more immediate with someone who's overtly mired in visible addiction yeah. because, you, you know, you don't have to argue that they're a little bit broken here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I came up to think also what C.S. Lewis said once when he talked about how we have so much misbelief about the greatest goods ever. So he said, you take a little boy who's about five years old, his worldview, the greatest good, he thinks, chocolate. Chocolate right. has to be the greatest good. And then he's got an older brother who decides to tell him, no, the greatest good is making love, and that's between a man and a woman, and that is by far the greatest good. It is so much better. And mm-hmm. the little boy asks, but do you have chocolate doing it? Right. And, it, and he says, well, in many cases, no, you may not, although there are some exceptions. He says, but he says, for the most part, the lovers aren't thinking about the lesser good of chocolate because they've discovered something that's so much better. And right. that's the thing when it comes to God that you have to present, yeah, you know, I know you think, for instance, the barter that you're holding on to or whatever it is, is really a great good, but it, it could be good in some ways in itself. I mean, I'm not saying all alcohol is wrong, for instance, but 
There right. is a far greater good out there, and this lesser good is keeping you from it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's it, isn't it? It's not the, not the. I think that's where kind of speaking of Christ becomes so yeah. important because it's not just speaking against where they're at, but offering them something which is more beautiful and more desirable than than what they currently possess. And isn't it kind of ironic that? As we near the end of talking about spiritual but not religious, the main thing he says, well, you know, if we're going to present this to them in a way they can understand and a way that can tie in their experiences, let's go to the person of Jesus and talk about him. Now we're right. wrapping things up with atheists and we're saying, let's go to the person of Jesus and talk about him. Yeah, yeah. No, completely. And that's one of the themes, really, of, of the book is that, mm-hmm. um, that uh, apologetic, has got separated from the rest of Christian life. Mm-hmm. It's got separated from um, evangelism right. and, and from, from speaking of Christ. It's got separated from all the other stuff like prayer and feeding the poor and church community and um, eating meals with people and healing and, and all the other stuff is kind of, it's all thrown in one category and over here is apologetics which is having arguments with people on a high intellectual plane and over here is the rest of Christian life. And I love apologetics, but I think it needs to be reintegrated into that, actually, and speak. it needs to become inseparable, really, from, from speaking of Christ and introducing people to Christ. You know, I, I think that can be very hard for some of us who are heavily into the apologetics war because, I mean, this book left me thinking a whole lot more about seeing evangelism every day because the main thing I'm thinking is, gosh, I'd love to be at the checkout line and... And here are some people behind me talking about, say, the cover of a magazine and saying, yeah, well, you know, this stuff about Jesus, it's nonsense. We, we don't even know if Jesus even exists or not. I mean, my ears would perk of that and I'd be ready. But uh, unfortunately for us, that's not going to happen too often. But what's going to happen often is we're going to meet people all across the spectrum from all religious perspectives and all non-religious perspectives who just don't know Christ. Right, no, completely. And and your makeup and your empathy is probably why you'd be particularly helpful in reaching a given group of people. But right. but I mean, society is diverse, isn't it? So you've got mm-hmm. to learn to to respond to to the other folk who unfortunately aren't going to be discussing Bart Ehrman in the checkout line. Right, right. I mean, it, it, it's very unlikely I'll be in the checkout line with someone and say, "So, what did you think of Bart Ehrman's latest book?" Who? I know. <laughs> It's funny, isn't it, though? I just have some times when things... Ha- I, I just remember talking to this guy once. Uh, it was the first conversation I'd ever have with him about God, and he just goes, sometimes I just wish that I could get an animal and sacrifice it for my sins. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. <laughs> I mean, these things do chat themselves your, your way sometimes. I guess you just don't have to live like that's going to be the norm. Yeah, and, and honestly, for me, it, it's very difficult. As I said, my wife and I are on the spectrum, so engaging in conversation can be extremely difficult. We don't know the person. I can go over the checkout line interacting with the cashier yeah. ringing me up without saying a single word, and yeah. that's normal. And, you know, it, it's that we, we don't really know just how to get started unless the topic comes up that it's something that we we can find an interest in. I mean, what what do you say about people who do have a hard time with evangelism like that? Yeah, I, I mean, it is hard, isn't it? And yeah. 
um, I guess just talk to people mm. really not it doesn't have to be about Christ just talk yeah. about life ask them how they're doing and, and try to um, try, try I mean this isn't really the topic of my book but I can tell you what I do when I'm doing evangelism training with people is just suggest to people that they can slightly ex- that there's already a set of relationships that mm-hmm. they're involved with there's people they see in the shop in the supermarket checkout every day there's neighbours they see in their apartment block or their neighbourhood or wherever mm-hmm. else it is that they live there's a whole bunch of people you brush up against there's people in your office who you have to you know run those files over to once a day yeah if you can expand those interactions a little bit um, mm-hmm. and, and just okay I have to run this file over to this guy's desk the other side of the office what if when I take it there I just take a couple of minutes and say how are you doing oh is this a photo of your kids here on your desk oh what's your name oh, that's, you know yeah. and if just a little build a little bit of relationship with people and I don't really have a strategy for bringing up Christ with people because yeah. because I do think that if I'm being myself and I'm connected with people it's going to be hard for that not to come up yeah, and I, I think it could be a mistake sometimes to jump straight to you. I mean, like I said, we've just moved to our new apartment complex, and we're just now starting to know our neighbors, and I haven't gone, James says, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. Do you know Jesus Christ as your person or Savior? Because I think right. as soon as I do that, that's going to be a turnoff, because they're going to be put on the defensive, because a lot of non-Christians out there, they can see themselves as if just projects of evangelism for right, everyone completely. else. Right, yeah. completely, yeah. Exactly, and I, and Christ said the supreme commandment was to love God and yeah. love others, and and an as, and if we see evangelism not as the separate, but it's an aspect of loving people, then if we if we just think it's okay, my because I live in an apartment block too, yeah. and um and I think okay, there's um I don't know what it is, fifty two or fifty six homes in this apartment block, and um my job is to love those people and I pray that as part of that I'll be able to share Christ with them but in the meantime I'm simply going to see how can I be a blessing to them I mean for instance suppose I meet neighbors and it's a man and woman they're living together and they're not married I mean one of the last things I need to do is walk in and say so how long have you all been living in sin like this right precisely it's not really very helpful is it it's just treat, it's treating people as people, isn't it? And um, and I mean, it, it's a leveler if you take Christian theology seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, is we're all made in God's image, we're all fallen, and we're all loved by God. And and in that sense, uh, and if any of us is to be saved, it's only going to be through grace. Mm-hmm. So there ought to, there ought to be that leveler of look. That's who everybody is living in my apartment block. Yeah. And so I shouldn't feel like you know whoever it is whether that, that's a Christian who's uncomfortable with living next door to a gay couple probably shouldn't feel uncomfortable living next to a gay couple shouldn't yeah. feel uncomfortable living to them with the Muslim guy across the corridor or the Mormons you know on the floor or upstairs it should be just we're just people made in God's image mm-hmm. fallen loved by God mm-hmm. you know it's a single thing that when people come to me talk about marriage and you say well what is it with your relationship with your wife? Why do you love so much and such? And I always say, you know, I love this much because Jesus is as much love, and He is 
my example, and I don't want to treat her any less way than Jesus treats me. Mm-hmm. That's great. And that, I guess that's an expression, isn't it? If, mm-hmm. I, you know, if that's not a tactic to crowbar and cross, that's a genuine expression of, of, of why you love your wife. That, yeah. that, that's that thing of putting Christian spirituality on display for mm-hmm. people. This yeah. is how it is a beneficial thing for my marriage, is to be inspired by the love of Christ. Right. And you can't, I mean, on the one level, we want to avoid looking weird. On yeah. the other level, it's downright unavoidable, isn't it, in a post-Christian right. culture, once you get onto the subject of God, to not look a bit weird. So you mm-hmm. just kind of have to suck it up and live with it. Although, personally, sometimes I enjoy looking weird. <laughs> well, there you are. Normal is overrated. Man. It's a setting on your dryer. That's it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's the upside right now, isn't it? Because, um... I mean, nerd culture and all that. Amen. <laughs> that kind of rules supreme. That makes you mainstream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener-funded. So I, I really can't stress how much we depend on you. And let me say, before I start talking about how you can make donations to us, your encouragement can even mean just so much. So if you go to iTunes and you leave a positive review of the, the podcast here, I would be absolutely thrilled when I see it. It's always great when I'm like, oh, look, there's a new review, there's a new review. It's great to know someone's blessing is being blessed by the show. And I'll have someone message me. I have someone message me a few weeks ago and said, you know, I'm sure you get this all the time, but I really appreciate it. And I said, no, no, I don't get this all the time, actually. <laughs> In fact, I'm sure Luke, you would agree with me, you hardly ever get it. Right. But, but these kinds of things go a whole lot. I mean, that's why I even tell you, with your own church, tell your pastor every now and then how much you appreciate what he does. He needs to hear it. But if you want to support us even more, go to our website, deeperwaters.ddns.net, and look on the link, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, there's a link in that that you can click. That takes you to a ministry of risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, you have. That's, the, that's my in-laws right there, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And when you click there and you make your donation, when you email Mike and Debbie or you email me in touch with me or Allie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to you. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that we get it. My mother-in-law is a financial guru with taxes. Your donation will be tax deductible, and let me say, if you can become a monthly donor, that would be even better, and you're kind of a bread and butter of what we do, and I really wish we were at the point where we could give some special gift to you and such, but unfortunately, we can't do that yet, but someday, hopefully, we'll have enough coming into this ministry so that we can do that, because we would really love to give back to the listeners. Now, you can also support us through Amazon by buying some books that I have written or co-written. Co-written include books like uh, Defining Inerrancy or Christian Answers to This Generation's Questions or Groundlets or even when I co-wrote an atheist, A Debate on Natural Evil. And all of those are available. And the one that I've written solely on my own, the uh, book A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian, and there's still another way you can support us here, because we've got a ministry partner who wants to help us out in this way. 
Now, I'm not sure if you've noticed it, but women tend to like jewelry. They, they really do. And so if you want to support Deeper Waters, one thing you can do is go support us by purchasing jewelry. Use the access code LOVE. And let myself or my friend Lena Clestor, who runs the premier jewelry store that we go through, know about it. And whatever you buy for that lady in your life, 25% of that purchase will go to Deeper Waters. So if you buy a $100 jewel for your lady, we get a $25 donation from it. So guys, you can do this. And you can uh, make up for that screw-up that you did in the past not too long ago. Or you can get those brownie points for that screw-up that you're going to have in the near future. Because I know you're going to. Now, um, Luke, do you have uh, any organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Sure. I mean, primarily they should donate to you, Nick. Because I think it's great to support your show, especially when it's getting going. I know it's really hard um, fundraising. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, so that would be my primary recommendation. I mean, we need funds. We're um, working in developing people who can communicate about Jesus in non-church contexts, and you mm -hmm. can do that on the Give tab on my website, which is Chrysalis um, C H R Y um, S O L I S C H R Y S O L I S dot org, and mm -hmm. um, that would be a tremendous help since we are in need of more money so you're more than welcome <laughs> or just buy my book it probably won't help us to around this amount in terms of royalties but um, if you want to read it and give us a good review we would be quite happy for you to do that mm -hmm. yeah, um, let's go to the final group here then and this one I think we want to give a caveat for because a lot of people can be scared they're in this group and that's phenomenal Christians, because I think we yeah. all know about the Christian who has prayed to receive Christ for the 572nd time, and they think yeah. the fifth baptism is going to seal the deal for them. Right. And so, let's talk to them before we get into how to reach them. What about those people who are scared they are in that category? That they're in that category? Yeah. Well, yeah, and you mentioned that, I think, either in your email or in your review about this. Right. Now, being an evangelism book, it's fundamentally less about that um, right. that would be more pastoral I guess but um, I guess I kind of touch on it I think Paul said as you began in Christ Jesus continue in him mm -hmm. um, or as um, John Wimber used to phrase it uh, the way in is the way on um, so the way that you come to Christ is the way that you continue on in your life in Christ and so my advice for anybody um, in any situation isn't, isn't to worry so much about whether they're in or out but to um, to respond in repentance and faith to Christ um, whether that's for the first time or the thousandth time yeah. that they're doing that. That, that that's how we grow as Christians that's how we enter into, the, into life together because it depends on him it doesn't depend on us ever it's simply about putting our trust in him yeah, I, I often tell people who have this kind of difficulty and every single one of them that I've met, I've never had any reason to doubt their salvation. That when they tell me that they're doubting it, that to me is one of the surest signs they have it because they care so much about it. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? And it's, it's, if you're worried about it, I mean, the, the thing with most actually nominal Christians isn't that they're worried about it it's right. that they're pretty confident <laughs> yeah 
I am in and I am a Christian. Mm. Um, it's just that their definition of or experience of what it means to be Christian, their definition of what it means to be Christian tends to be deficient. So how can we reach these nominal Christians? Because it's pretty hard to have to go up to someone and kind of give the impression that, yeah, I know that you say you're a Christian, I just don't really believe it. Right, and I don't think that's really very helpful. Right. Um, so um, when somebody says to me, um, and quite often uh, have people say to me, you know, I'm, I'm Orthodox, I'm a Roman Catholic or whatever, Church of England give you their religious identity as a kind of palm off Um, and I know the given person doesn't have any living relationship with Christ Um, I don't say you're not (laughs) this is what a real Christian is I mean I would say well tell me about your relationship with God tell me what that means to you and and because there will be people aren't claiming that for no reason and um, figure out what it is they understand, how much understanding it is they have of Christ. Even that question can highlight a little bit for people that they don't really have any relationship with God. Um, mm-hmm. What they have is a religious identity. To go, oh, if somebody says, oh, I'm a Christian. God, me too. But, um, you know, tell me about your relationship with God. Well, uh, <laughs> tell me about yours. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. And when this also include people who say, where if I want to uh, go to heaven, as it were, I pretty much just have to be a good person, and that's enough. Right, exactly. That's the big question that people ask. I mean, also based on the misconception that, that Christianity is all about going to heaven. Right, um, that's why I phrased it the way I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, there's loads of ways to approach that, aren't there, depending on who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say, oh, I hope I don't go to heaven. Because <laughs> I want to be on the new earth really but mm-hmm. um but i don't know that i would take that as my normal approach with people um i mean you can ask people in asking people what let me see hold on a second um i mean asking people why they okay do, do you think this is what the bible teaches do you think this is what the new testament teaches and if people are thinking, okay, this is the essence of Christianity, yeah, of course that's what the Bible teaches, that's what all religions teach. I mean, it's good to ask people why they think Jesus died. Um, and, and people will kind of come with something, often come with something vague about how he loved us. Um, but I think that takes you to the heart, you know, why did Jesus die if we just have to work our way to heaven? Because actually, you know, Jesus said, I came... Uh, to give my life as a ransom and um, ransom was payment at the slave market and slaves didn't have any money to release themselves mm-hmm. um, it, it's an implication that you are a slave, you are incapable of saving yourself and you need somebody else to come in with a pocket full of money to lay down the cost and, mm-hmm. and what Jesus is saying is through my death I affect your freedom and your reconciliation to God and so forth say so, I think if you get onto the question of the cross and why Jesus died and if people really think that's what Christianity teaches that that can be helpful conversationally mm-hmm. yeah and well, I think a lot of this comes with the uh, pluralism context mm-hmm. we live in that we live in a culture where it says well you know it's if God judges this way it's fair it's not really fair to say there's only one way to God mm-hmm yeah um 
yeah people ask that don't they mm. and um and i guess the question is do we want fair right. <laughs> for a start do we really want fair because mm-hmm. i mean if the biblical narrative is true and as i said the world is not only a moral place but the world is also a relational place and we spend our lives keeping our creator at arm's length uh, keeping the most important relationship in this relational universe at arm's length from ourselves then there are going to be consequences to that mm-hmm. and if we if we want fair um, you know even if we just think of it in moral and not relational terms we always draw this line of where's good and where's bad mm-hmm. we always amazingly all of us draw that line um, with us on the good side <laughs> yeah yeah no <laughs> like the line says like, oh, you know, I'm a really horrible person. Right, exactly. I'm bad. I used to occasionally meet people who really are aware that they've, that they've messed up. But, yeah. I, I mean, like, yeah, so I think um, I think you could talk to people about, you know, what if you wanted to talk about it in moral terms, it's kind of the classic way of talking about, it, you know, actually you don't get to draw the line. Mm-hmm. Um, God gets to draw the line. And unfortunately... <laughs> Um, that's going to leave us all in trouble. Or you can talk about it in relational terms. You know, if you're going to keep your creator at arm's length, that's mm-hmm. going to have consequences, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so none of us really want fair, even yeah. though we plead fair. What we want is justice for everyone else and mercy and grace for us. Oh, yes. Yes, that's something I've said on show before that and on my blog that it's when we talk about the evil world, we want God to rain down fire and brimstone on the right. wicked, evil people. But please, God, have mercy on us. We very rarely pray mercy for others and justice for ourselves. Right, exactly. And and Lewis has a great little essay about that mm. on forgiveness, where he says mm. um, that we think we confuse the categories of excusing someone and forgiving someone. Mm-hmm. And so we think that when we say who's going to be forgiven by God who is God going to say oh that wasn't so bad right. that's okay but actually the fact that we all need to be forgiven is about the fact that God looks at all of us and says that was pretty awful yeah but I forgive you mm-hmm. and when we talk about the whole pluralism thing also whenever people go off on this journey they want to you know find God and they want to explore all the religions of the world it's amazing. Usually, they come back with a God who tends to agree with them on everything. I know, right? <laughs> what a coincidence! Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? And um, I mean, that's a whole other story. That the adapt, also the adaptation of world religions and the way that people come out saying, oh, I'm, you know, I've embraced Buddhism, and it kind of doesn't look anything like <laughs> Buddhism as has ever been practiced um, prior to about thirty years ago. Um, yeah, and people are. I mean, there may be people on this real search, and there are people on that real search. Who I oh, probably yeah. stick, stick in the spiritual, not religious category. There's many people who use the pluralism thing as a kind of palm off. Because mm-hmm. so, I don't think most people, most people in Western culture, aren't contemplate weighing up all oh, religions lead to God. Should I be a Muslim? Should I be a Buddhist? Should I be a you know they're really yeah. weighing up am I going to be a Christian yeah. Yeah. am I going to be kind of nominally Christian or am I going to be essentially an agnostic or an atheist these are my functionally my options they're not weighing up with those religious options so when somebody says you know I think all powers lead to God you, kind of, you can say to them well you know 
very interesting. So what is your path and how does it lead to God? <laughs> Um, yep. rather than having to go on the offensive against Buddhism and Islam and all the rest that probably makes you look a little kind of arrogant when you start attacking all the other religions just get things and well, okay it's a really interesting perspective what is your religion and how does it lead to God um, I think is a, can be a good focus isn't it also part of the problem in our culture today that religion usually isn't seen about truth but just about you know, like what you like Right. So you go out and you choose a religion, you're not looking and say, geez, does Hinduism really have a good, firm foundation for its belief system? It's like, hey, I kind of like this reincarnation idea. I think I'll go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, and the way you're going to approach someone in the culture, in, in kind of Western culture, mm-hmm. who would kind of come from a nominally Christian background who says these things is going to be quite different to how you would approach somebody from a Hindu background mm-hmm. who says those things because and some people in our culture surely have looked into it quite a lot other people will be just yeah I'm kind of attracted to reincarnation I'm just I don't think it's bad to ask, well how do you know that's true right like I mean other than the fact that you kind of want that to be true what's your what's your basis for this yeah. Um, it is good to get into the, the why you believe question with people. You know, one of the things that's been said about our young people today is most of them, their worldview can be described as moral therapeutic deism. Yep. Pretty much they believe in a God who's you know out there and distant. Uh, he teaches them to be a good person, but he doesn't really do much. And that's why they just need a comfort, and then he's their buddy and he's going to take care of them. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a huge danger mm-hmm. with as we interact with people who are um, nominally Christian. Is so. I mean, one of the things I've read about is people saying, um, oh, "I can be happy without God," right? Or I can I can be I can be good without God. And the real danger in that is that that comes out of a moral therapeutic framework. As you said, morally, I can yeah. be good without God therapeutic I can be happy without God and and I think so often Christians don't tackle that orientation of moralistic therapeutic they buy into it and just try to offer a better moralistic therapeutic option <laughs> mm-hmm. look how Christianity can make you happier right. look at look at how Christianity can make you better and happier and and all you're trying to do is trump their moralism and therapy that kind of therapy with your own moralism and therapy um, whereas I think you really actually want to go after the idea that goodness and happiness are all that count in this world there, there was a preacher I once heard I, it was like a quick little radio ad thing and he was making a point saying that, you know sometimes when we give our testimonies our time before Christ actually sounds a whole lot better than our time after Christ <laughs> right. you know before Christ, I was a drug dealer. I was living a life of luxury. I was driving fancy cars. I was sleeping with a different woman every night. And now I'm a Christian. I'm attending church services every Sunday and giving money <laughs> to the poor. And I'm right. living a nice, humble lifestyle. Thing. Okay, I think most of us would say that first life actually sounds pretty good. Right. No, and I, you know, it's funny, isn't it, that... Um, yeah, no, we do, we do that, and so we do. Have, we have to tackle the roots of that because by that yeah. we might lose. <laughs> right. By that, by that comparison, oh, are you not as happy? 
Mm. Oh, you not so, you know, conform to the wider world standards of goodness in the way that you yeah. live now. And I think if, if you see Jesus as the the true kind of human being, the true embodiment of what it means to be human, it's so interesting to read of him getting angry, getting frustrated, mm. crying, um, all, these, all these other kind of emotions. And to see that for us, that's the embodiment of what it means to be human. I, it, it's to have this full range of emotions and reactions to life, not simply to soar away on a serene plane. I don't think we are, you are attuned to reality if you just are constantly on a cloud of blissful happiness. Because I think to live in a fallen world, as is demonstrated in the emotional life of Christ, is actually frequently to be thrown into turbulence and to be thrown into kind of pain and difficulty and all that kind of thing so um so i think instead of promising people everything will get easier i think it's helpful to be honest that things might change in a way which 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 unsettle you um what one of my friends says that the and it has really kind of affected the way that i preach actually he says a message for this generation is I dare you to follow Jesus. Mm. Um, in, in the, he says it's not about just wooing people over with, you know, when it makes it a bit nice, when it makes it a bit happy. It's going to look, to be hard, it's not easy, it's probably going to throw your emotional life into disarray, mm. and, I dare, and I dare you to do it. Yeah. Uh, I can remember, I think that, first off, for a third time, it's come back to the person of Jesus again. Mm-hmm. And second, we talk about how the life's going to be that when you look for instance at the conversion of Paul and one of the three accounts given, God says to Ananias, I will show this man how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Right. I mean, when, when, uh, if Paul heard about, you know, that the purpose of a Christian life is to live a happy, comfortable life, so she'd say, whoa, I must have done something wrong. Right, why isn't that anybody's life first right now? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that is, that is the call. It's the call to kind of pick up your cross and follow him. Yeah. And uh, I, I have to think, you know, that um, we had Jackson Wu on the show a, couple, yeah. a few weeks or so ago talking about the, the uh, Near East, Far Eastern context of honor and shame. And one of the things I point out was, you know, so much about evangelism and such, it's really individually centered like yeah. that. I mean, you go up to him and say, hey, uh, I want you to know God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Hey, that sounds great. Can I get two gods like that? Because that's all right. about me. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And we, we make God very small in the mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. It, it, it seems that I know what we mean where what we mean where by it, but it looks like we've turned Jesus into kind of the, the buddy Jesus, as yeah, it were, yeah. Jesus who's just interested in a personal relationship with you instead of Jesus as a sovereign Lord and King. Right. No. Exactly. And I don't think you can confront the gospel accounts without. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read the gospels, it's a, the part of the scripture I read the most. And I read it, and I just think, gosh, Jesus, you are confusing, and you're irritating sometimes. I mean, really, he's an he's an unsettling figure. 
and um, mm-hmm. and I think I think you know helpfully so that's a, that's a good thing isn't it but right. uh, but but he's still an unsettling figure and our attempts to smooth that over I think actually kind of smooth over the reality of who Christ is and and in the process oddly might maybe make him more palatable while making him less attractive and compelling right we interviewed at the start of the year Mark Strauss on his book Jesus Behaving Badly looking uh, at yeah. ways that Jesus seems to come off pretty wrongly in mm-hmm. the Bible and, and those are very very real times still too I mean yes he was a perfect man but there were times he had anger there were times he had sorrow I mean, yeah. if you're talking about living a perfect Christian life of joy and happiness where heck Jesus didn't have that no, no, exactly, and mm-hmm. I, I sometimes think we we are selling people kind of. On the one hand, Christians often preach a kind of Islamic God because they see preach this kind of solitary entity that they don't really tend to kind of emphasise the trinitarian aspect of God, and then they tend to preach a Buddhist spirituality mm-hmm. <laughs> of peace and contentment and being unaffected by the world around you. Whereas I think Christ plunges you deeper into being affected by the world around you you are supposed to you, I think you are supposed to feel the brokenness of the world more mm-hmm. when you when you follow Christ you're not supposed to rise off serenely up yeah, over it, here could it be very part of the problem is uh, we promised people with Christianity things Jesus himself never promised and yeah. then when people come across suffering lives, like, wait, wait, this isn't supposed to happen, it's not supposed to be this way. Now, understandably, there's a point where we can all come to complain about God, about suffering and such mm-hmm. happens in the Psalms, but the thing is, we look at it like it's the aberration in life, and the New Testament tells us the exact opposite. No, it does, doesn't it? And, mm-hmm. and you're right, it's good to bring up the Psalms, because I had a few, a, a few times when I was speaking like they've had people who aren't Christians here kind of had some vague connection to Christianity, occasional Christmas and Easter faith and then mm. come along and go look, one reason I really struggle to believe with this is you know, I'm kind of frustrated with the injustice in the world and I feel like, you know, sometimes I'm annoyed with God and I'm like, you do realise that by the prophets felt the same way as you in the mm. Bible, you're just telling me what people in the Bible say here, so you're not so far away from it all as you think you are um, mm-hmm. So in that sense, yeah, it's good to remember that, isn't it? But um, that it's okay. But on the other hand, you are right. We do think that God's promised us an easy ride, and especially mm-hmm. that's painfully kind of the case in the West, I think. Right. Um, and whenever I'm in the States, I'm just kind of there's part of me that says I just can't. I could never live here. I can't take this because because you can get everything. You get every kind of burger and beverage and clothing item everything 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 is oriented towards you and your control and then in comes Christ who's nothing but <laughs> and yeah. says look I, I didn't come to bring peace to the sword <laughs> yeah, and I, it I, just doesn't jive with the rest of your reality I, I think Robbie Zacharias says only in America can you go to Los Angeles and find a Korean street vendor selling fast food kosher tacos <laughs> right because it, it has become the way of our culture today and uh, the idea of more is better and the good life is a life built around having more and removing pain in yep. every single way from life without realizing pain can be one of God's greatest blessings in our lives 
Yeah, I completely think so. And I think, I I mean, you open up a whole other can of worms here, don't you, about, Mm. you know, why are all our... um, why were our worship songs so excited and yeah. um, and upbeat when you know you've got, you've got a whole book of poetry in the Old Testament like Lamentations, yeah. which is a kind of depressed post-war depiction of rape and cannibalism. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm not suggesting we necessarily sing that in the family service, but mm-hmm. at the same time there has to be some reflection that there's a lot more to it than bobbing up and down, bubbling over with joy. Yeah. Although I, I must say I am quite, you know, I do love following Christ and it is a positive thing, but that's not the whole story. It looks like for most of us, we tend to kind of want to out-spiritualize one another and put our best biblical foot forward, and that means, my God, we're going to be showing that we have joy and everything and that our lives are great. Yeah. And, and this is especially common on Facebook where everyone likes to put forward all the great things that they do. And me, of course, I like how Greg Coker has talked about this before, where you know, talk about those people who really show their spirituality off to everyone they can. Yeah. Or come to you and say, you know, I was thinking about you during my third prayer time today. And okay. While I was memorizing the book of Jeremiah, I was thinking that... Oh, my gosh, yeah, I know. Uh, and um, what are you going to do? I'm not going to put the worst parts of me on Facebook, <laughs> but um, but it, it does kind of shape you into a temptation to, yeah, just present your kind of best self and your most perfect self. Um, and it's that. I mean, it's not joy versus suffering, is it? It's right. joy. It's joy in suffering and joy right. in pain. Um, but no, I, I mean, I live in a city with a, a lot of poverty and brokenness, and mm-hmm. and I think it's important to feel that. Mm-hmm. It's not Christ-like to for that not to bother me. Well, that's of the thing is, we just have to get the nominal Christian to be taking Christ seriously. And the main way we're going to stop being do that though is that we have to be the ones to take him seriously first. Yes, exactly, because it, because a person who is nominally Christian thinks they've experienced Christianity and thinks they've experienced what it means to be Christian. And so I kind of went in the... Uh, with each of these three groups, you can get uh, atheist, nominal Christians, and spiritual, not religious. With each group, I have a, a chapter that outlines what they're like mm-hmm. a, um, in, the, in all their diversity. A chapter which outlines their questions and, and ways to respond to those and a mm-hmm. chapter which outlines things you can do with them. And in the section of things to do with nominal Christians, it's really a lot about um, the ways we can both enable them to reconsider Christ mm-hmm. and, the, and the ways that we can welcome them into community and redefine for them what it means to be Christian. They have an assumption of what it means to be Christian. But what happens when they meet you, who's a real Christian? Right. And what, what happens when they enter a community of people who are really Christian? What are, how's that going to shake up their life? Because I think normally for nominal Christians, it is entering a Christian community at some point on the spiritual journey, which is going to be the most catholic aspect of them coming to Christ. I mean, if you're listening to this, I mean, if your idea of Christianity is going and sitting in a church pew for an hour every Sunday or so, and that, that's the good Christian life, you're not really living it that much. I, I'm thinking right now, in fact, of a, and I've said this on my blog, I was doing a show before, about the time I was in a small group, for instance, and 
for the lady saying, well, you know what? My children are saved. I'm saved. So I think it's just wait, sitting back and waiting for Jesus to come. Oh, right. Gosh. I know. Well, that that's the thing, isn't it? And and because the language has been so much of, of Jesus serving you up, mm-hmm. your salvation, that's mm-hmm. why I think, I think the language of following Jesus and the language of allowing him to be leader of your life um, the, the, or other kind of ways you might rephrase lordship is very helpful to right. those who've grown in a culture where they purely conceive of, of Jesus as saviour in an almost vending machine fashion. Right. <laughs> if I stuck my money in the machine, I got out my ticket of salvation. I mean, there's so many issues underlying that conception of salvation, but one of them is simply what does it mean to know God and personal relationship with God is supposed to mean a person relating to a personal God but it's become come to mean private relationship with God yeah. which which really means I pray now and then and it's none of your business yeah, I think one of the main mistakes we've made also is we make an emphasis on conversions and we don't place any emphasis really on discipleship and it'd be just like saying well, I got Mr. and Mrs. X to yard or I'm to say I do. Well, I guess everything's good from now on. Instead of realizing, no, when they say I do, that's just the beginning of everything. Yeah. And when you get someone converted, that's not the end. That's the beginning. Yeah, and, and there's something of a confusion, I guess, between justification and conversion. Right. In, a sen- in the sense that, you know, justification basically involves a, um, as one person puts it the kind of gentle nod of the soul towards God mm-hmm. um, in the sense and that putting trust there I think conversion is the kind of the outworking of that as, as we respond to Christ and um, Gordon Smith wrote this great book called Beginning Well that I kind of summarise in the mm-hmm. book where he says that, that you could break conversion down into multiple elements so belief do you agree with and understand certain facts about Jesus repentance um, do you have have you do you not only agree but have you changed your mind and your direction right. and have you rejected the way of sin trust and assurance of forgiveness so in some sense it's going to touch you on the level of your affections and your emotions not only on the level of the, the mind and the will um, mm-hmm. commitment allegiance devotion the gift of the spirit and all the all, and then also baptism which in a way is like a wedding ring it, it doesn't it doesn't put you in a relationship with God but it symbolizes that you're in a relationship with him mm-hmm. being part of the Christian community and so he breaks all these down as aspects of conversion and mm-hmm. says that the, jo- the job of an evangelist isn't just to get someone to pray a prayer Right. It's to help. It's actually, we, well, actually, we do want that person incorporated in the Christian community. Mm-hmm. We do them, want them to believe what they're affirming. We do want them to to be living a life of constant repentance and rejection of sin. All these aspects are important, not just as kind of simplistic. Did you sign the card and you're you're in? Mm-hmm. Well, Nick, we've had a, a good discussion here on this, but I think unfortunately we're getting to close to time where things have to come to an end. Like to remind everyone, the book is The Myth of a Non-Christian. I'm looking on Amazon right now. The Kindle edition of it is 9.99, and the paperback is 10.97. 
Now, Luke, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, do you have a blog or a website or a way they can get in yeah. touch with you? Yeah, so there's there's two ways. One would be lukecawley.org, L-U-K-E-C-A-W-L-E-Y.org, so my name.org. The other one would be our organization's website. It's chrysalis, C-H-R-Y-S-O-L-I-S, C-H-R-Y-S-O-L-I-S.org. So lukecawley.org or chrysalis.org, and you will or just Google Luke Corley and all that stuff will come up because there's me and a child actor who share that name so mm-hmm. we'll be the two people who come up yeah well, I, I found it's me and a sports writer who share our name okay. but we're, we're worlds apart there uh, I'm part of a group where someone where a bunch of us put some pictures of the things and someone said here's our family on our way to a game of netball they were in South Africa and someone said I had to look up what netball is <laughs> and this person responds, yeah, it's a pretty popular sport here. And so I decided, you yeah, know, I'm going to keep this theme going and say, I had to look up what a sport is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you have any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? No, it's been it's been a great discussion. I'm glad it kept ranging off to this um, kind of circling back to Christ. I guess my you know my final yeah. thought would be the one that the stream throughout here that to, to see apologetics yeah. as part of the process of introducing people to Christ and mm-hmm. uh, looking at the ways that he can not just be the end point of our apologetics but even integrated in to the way that we seek to commend Christ to people well Luke I'd like to thank you for coming on hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime yeah I hope so too alright great to chat Nick yeah, I like to remind everyone that this Saturday Walt Heyer is going to be my guest, and we are going to be talking about the transgender movement. Should be very interesting. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off.